You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The prisoner was dreaming of open fields and sunlight when the clang of the metal door startled him awake. There were footsteps in the hall, and he sat up. The sound echoed on the stone walls and made the iron bars hum. There were two sets of footprints. One was the heavy, thick-soled stride of a prison guard. The other was softer, quicker in its gait, accompanied by the telltale squeak of new leather shoes. He could hear the others moving in their cells, shuffling closer to the light, curious to see who would be allowed to interrupt their quiet solitude. The footsteps stopped at his cell, five feet from the door, and he turned to see a short, thin man, smartly dressed in a gray three-piece suit. His hair was slicked, his face clean-shaven. A shock of purple silk exploded from his left breast pocket, and the chain of a gold pocket watch cascaded from his third vest button into the shadows on his left side. Thick, arched brows curled around his dark, deep-set eyes. He looked at the prisoner the way a snake looks at a mouse. A guard came alongside him carrying a wooden chair. He sat it on the floor facing the cell and walked away. The mysterious stranger stood with his hands in his pockets, listening to the guard's footsteps grow fainter. The distant door clanged again, and for a moment, silence filled the empty spaces. Then, keeping his eyes fixed on the prisoner, the man placed his right hand on the back of the chair and dragged it slowly across the concrete floor, stopping less than two feet from the cell. He removed his jacket with practiced, careful motions, folded it neatly, and placed it over the back of the chair, then sat and lit a cigarette. The prisoner walked forward and grabbed the bars. You want something? The stranger sat motionless and silent, staring into the eyes of the prisoner, who was starting to feel nervous. A narrow wisp of smoke crept along his knuckles, trailing from the cigarette clutched between two slender fingers. The prisoner tried again. Did they find the rifle? Silence. Look, I already told everything to the detective. I don't... I I would never... Who are you, anyway? The stranger rested his right cheek and temple on his thumb and index finger. His eyes shined like coal. The prisoner shrugged and slumped, defeated, onto the bed. You came to stare at an innocent man, huh? Well, take a good look. For the next five hours, that's exactly what he did. The stranger did nothing but sit in silence and stare. Those eyes, as sharp and hard and black as obsidian, never looking away, never softening, never betraying fear or feeling, even as the prisoner screamed and laughed in his face and wept, and finally lay on his side facing the wall. The stranger did not move an inch or speak a single word. In the end, as if at random, he stood, grabbed his jacket, and walked away, his leather oxfords squeaking all the way down the hall and through that heavy metal door, then further still to the warden's office, where the detective sat waiting. Come quickly, the stranger said. I know where the murder weapon can be found.
You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. We've all heard stories about psychic detectives, people with uncanny, supposedly paranormal abilities like postcognition, psychometry, clairvoyance, or remote viewing, who use their talents to help police departments solve crimes. There are endless TV and streaming shows out there focused on the topic, and quite a few prominent cases throughout the United States, Australia, and the UK. But did you know that, according to some sources, Canada is home to the first criminal case ever to be solved by a psychic? At least, that's what they say. Tonight's episode is part true crime, part folklore, as we look at the history and the legend behind four murders that took place on a farm outside Edmonton, Alberta, in the summer of 1928. It's a story found everywhere, from the History Channel to the Weekly World News, to the Complete Idiot's Guide to Criminal Investigation. It's the story of a murder mystery that shocked a nation, and the hypnotist clairvoyant who is said to have solved it. This is the story of the murderer and the mind reader. Part 1. Murder in the Heartland A brief note before I begin, the following story includes true details of a violent crime. Listener discretion is advised. It was just after sunset on Monday, July 9th, 1928, when someone banged on the door of the Ross family's farmhouse. They opened it to find their neighbor, 20-year-old Vernon Boer, standing on their doorstep. He asked to use their phone. His mother and brother had been shot. Shortly after 9 p.m., Dr. Heaslip arrived at the Boer farm to find Vernon and his two sisters, Dorothy and Elgertha, waiting for him by the highway. The girls had just returned from town when they walked in on the grisly scene inside the family home. They had run outside and were relieved to find Vernon safe in the field, returning from the Ross farm. The doctor ventured inside and confirmed his worst fears. Eunice Boer and her son Fred were dead. The doctor asked if there were others living on the farm who were still unaccounted for. The Boer children explained that, as far as they knew, their father was still working in a field miles away and that two hired men were missing. Vernon and the doctor carefully made their way into the darkened bunkhouse where they discovered the body of one of those men, Gabriel Gorumby lying against the southwest wall, shot through the chin. With no sign of the second farmhand, and fearing the killer might still be somewhere on the premises, the four quickly loaded into the doctor's car and drove the mile to the Ross farm. Vernon and Dr. Heaslip left the girls in the care of Mrs. Ross and borrowed a shotgun and rifle, then returned to the scene to wait for the police. On the way, they met Vernon's father, Henry, in the company of two neighbors. They all rushed back to the farm, where Vernon and his father searched for the other hired man, Wassil Bill Rossick. They found him in the barn, shot in the back of the head. Constable C.H. Olson arrived on scene at 11.20 p.m. and quickly determined that this wasn't a robbery gone wrong because nothing was stolen. And it wasn't a spontaneous crime of passion, either. The Boers owned two firearms and both hung untouched on a wall. The shotgun was coated in a thick layer of dust. 
The 22 caliber rifle was more recently used, but incapable of inflicting the damage done to the victims' bodies. The killer had taken their time, too, gathering every spent cartridge they could find. As Olsen moved between buildings, the neighbors whispered that it may have been a murder-suicide, that Gorumby, the man in the bunkhouse, had taken his own life. That theory was quickly ruled out when it was discovered that he had been shot three times, and the murder weapon was missing. With no obvious suspect and no apparent motive, all the clues pointed to one conclusion. This was the calculated work of a cold-blooded killer. The newspapers used a different term. The next morning, the entire country woke to the news that a maniac slayer was on the loose in Alberta's heartland. For the first time in memory, the people in this tiny rural community began to lock their doors, eye their neighbors with suspicion, and urge their children inside well before dark. The quadruple homicide rocked the village of Manville and shocked the nation. This kind of thing simply didn't happen in small towns, and the police knew that if they wanted to keep the peace along with the public's confidence, they would need to solve this mystery as quickly as possible. There was no man better suited to the task than the head of the Criminal Identification Department, Detective Sergeant Frank Leslie. When the detective arrived at the Boer farm later that afternoon, it was like he was stepping into a pocket of frozen time. The house loomed silent and still on a hill overlooking the valley. The birds reeled through the sky, the grass bent in the summer breeze. But inside the home, all life had stopped the moment the first shot rang out. An untouched pie was on the kitchen counter. A saucepan of cold boiled rice sat next to a teapot on the stove with another pan of water behind them. Bright red strawberries wilted in the summer heat were strewn across the table and floor along with the fractured remains of a fruit bowl and splinters of wood torn from the table when the first killing shot passed through its mark, glanced off the table, struck the wall, and embedded itself in a door jamb. Detective Leslie and Constable Olson quickly established a rough timeline of the murders. Mrs. Boer was the obvious first target. She had been sitting at the dining room table cutting strawberries with her back to the kitchen door when the killer, standing by the stove, fired once through the open doorway. The bullet shattered her skull, and the report likely caught the attention of her son, Fred, who rushed into the kitchen from outside and was immediately gunned down, then shot again as he lay bleeding on the floor. Next, the killer moved past Fred's body, out the door, and walked 50 feet west to the barn where Bill was feeding the pigs. The pail was still on the ground next to Bill's body. He had been shot in the head. The killer then turned and walked past the farmhouse about 30 feet east to what the family called the caboose, the bunkhouse at the edge of the property. There, the killer opened the door and fired at Gabriel, the second farmhand, as he lay sleeping in the upper berth opposite the door. The shot had torn through his chin and the wall, and a single shaft of sunlight now beamed through the dusty dark. There were no unexpected tracks or tire marks, no known enemies, no rumors of conflict, in the end, the evidence pointed to only two suspects, husband and father, Henry Boer, and his son, Vernon. Though both men claimed to be working alone in the field at the time of the murders, Henry seemed to have a better alibi. He had been further from the house than Vernon and away for much longer. He was also seen by different neighbors throughout the day. 
Vernon, by comparison, said he had been down in the pasture fetching the cows when he heard the first gunshot. He claimed that he brought them to the barn, then went inside the house where he discovered the bodies of his mother and brother. But there was disagreement among the first responders about whether that was true. Some stayed overnight on the property and recalled waking at midnight to the sound of the cows returning home on their own. Vernon's behavior seemed suspicious as well. Henry and his daughters were understandably distraught, but Vernon seemed cool and indifferent. During the preliminary investigation, while Vernon lingered at the side of his mother's body, Constable Olson asked him, How's your nerve? The 20-year-old smiled. All right, he said. It doesn't bother me. According to Olson, the only time Vernon showed any kind of emotion was when the constable discovered a spent bullet casing inside the dishpan on the stove, ejected when the killer fired the first round. He was showing it to some of the neighbors who had gathered on the property when Vernon excitedly ran up to the group and asked what he had found. Olson said it was nothing and slipped it into his pocket. More evidence would be found in the following days that implicated Vernon even further. The casing that Constable Olson had found came from a 303 British rifle cartridge, and further investigation revealed that one of the Boer's neighbors, Charles Stevenson, was missing a straight-pull, bolt-action Ross rifle chambered in that caliber. He didn't realize it was missing until the police came knocking. He confirmed that he had lent it to the Boer family the year before, and that Vernon likely knew of its location. Other neighbors reportedly saw Vernon riding his horse in the direction of the Stevenson home the Sunday before the murder, while the Stevenson family was still at church. On the day of the murders, neighbors reported hearing two distinct sets of gunshots, the first at 6 p.m. shortly after the Boer sisters left for town, and the second between 7.30 p.m. and 8 p.m. They thought nothing of them at the time, as gunfire was a regular occurrence in the rural community. But the timing of the shots suggested that the killer had stayed at the scene after murdering Mrs. Boer and her son, and then, nearly two hours later, shot the two farmhands to keep them from discovering the crime. Then came a bombshell. William Scott, the reeve of the municipality, could place Vernon at the scene between those two sets of murders. The reeve had visited the Boer farm at 7 p.m. to deliver a tax receipt. He told police that Vernon met him at the gate and chatted for a few minutes while casually tossing pebbles in the air. As they were chatting, Bill Rossick came by and told Vernon he was heading to the farmhouse for supper. Vernon stopped him and asked him to go to the barn and feed the pigs instead. It was the last time that Bill would be seen alive. The implications were chilling. Vernon happily chatted with William Scott only an hour before he murdered two innocent men, while his mother and brother lay already dead just a few feet away. Vernon was detained by the Alberta Provincial Police and held as a material witness. One week later, following the July 17th inquest, he was arrested and charged with four counts of murder. Though Detective Leslie was certain he had arrested the right man, neither he nor the police commissioner nor the attorney general were confident of a conviction. Even before the inquest, they knew that the trial was certain to be a public relations nightmare. Vernon was known to be a kind, quiet, and gentle person. His nickname in the family was Bunny. He was a young, handsome, athletic, all-Canadian from the heartland. 
The Calgary Herald praised him as a, quote, crack junior hockeyist, end quote. He denied the charges, of course, and his sisters and father backed him up, saying that there were no issues within the family and there was no animosity of any kind between Vernon and his mother or brother. There was no motive, no eyewitnesses, no direct evidence, and perhaps most importantly, no murder weapon. The police, along with dozens of local volunteers, had combed every inch of the Boer farm and surrounding property for days, dragging the well, searching the fields, the brush, the barn, the houses, and finding nothing. The acts of which Vernon was accused were declared by the Calgary Herald to be, quote, perhaps the most atrocious in the annals of crime in Western Canada, end quote. And the penalty was death. To comfortably send a promising young man to the gallows, the evidence would have to be irrefutable, and they would need to be absolutely certain of Vernon's guilt. They found that certainty with the help of one man. Part 2. The Doctor Comes to Town His name was Dr. Adolf Maximilian Langsner. He was a dark and dapper gentleman about 35 years of age, and his credentials were outstanding. A renowned criminologist, doctor of philosophy, celebrated psychologist, and master hypnotist, he was considered to be an expert in human behavior due, in part, to his uncanny ability to read the brainwaves of others. Hailing from Vienna, he had studied psychology under Sigmund Freud himself, and the two remained close friends. He continued his studies of anatomy, psychology, and philosophy throughout Scandinavia and Europe, then ventured to India, where he trained in the ancient mystic arts of mind control and telepathy in the mountains of Calcutta. After several years learning all that he could from the East, Dr. Langsner decided to travel the world, investigating the inner workings of the human mind, developing his superhuman abilities, and helping those in need. By 1928, he had become an honorary member of nearly every major police force on the planet, and had worked as a secret agent for some of the most powerful and most secretive agencies under multiple national flags. Some said he served as a British spy during the First World War. In 1921, he helped bring an anarchist bomber to justice in Bucharest. In 1923, when the curse of Tutankhamun had struck down Lord Carnarvon, Langsner was called in by the British government to investigate his death, and his sensational findings, thought to be too shocking to reveal, were sealed away in the Egyptian state archives. In 1926, it was Langsner who revealed that the Maharaja of Indore was involved in a scandalous murder, a revelation that cost the monarch the throne. He had also cracked a piracy ring in China by deliberately getting caught by the ruffians and taken prisoner. He even solved the murder of a famous Viennese manufacturer with the assistance of none other than famed novelist and Sherlock Holmes creator Arthur Conan Doyle. His technique was as simple as it was remarkable. The doctor maintained that when the human mind is under stress, it can emit powerful signals that can linger in the environment long after the person has left like a scent, imperceptible to normal humans, but easily tracked by one who has trained his mind to pick up these quote-unquote thought waves. At the time of the Boer murders, Langsner was in Vancouver, British Columbia, where he had helped the police locate a set of priceless jewels stolen by a clever thief. 
Members of the local police force watched in awe as the good doctor entered the cell of the suspect, stood quietly in the corner, then exited only 30 minutes later after thoroughly searching his mind. He told the investigators that they would find the jewels hidden behind a photograph inside a yellow room. Those details were enough to lead them back to the home of the suspect's girlfriend, where they promptly proved the doctor right. There were the jewels hidden behind a photograph in the yellow front room of her apartment. Dr. Langsner's show of skill was nothing less than amazing, and the head of the British Columbia Provincial Police was quick to recommend his services to anyone struggling with an unsolvable mystery. The kind of mystery that the Alberta Provincial Police now faced. A few telegrams and a train ride later, Dr. Langsner and his assistants stepped onto the platform in Edmonton, Alberta. Detective Sergeant Leslie was there to greet him. Eager to get started, he was sworn in as a special constable and got to work. First, he was brought to Manville, where he sat in the audience during the inquest and took copious notes. One reporter later remarked how he glanced over the mysterious man's shoulder to see that he was making notes in, quote, an unfamiliar language that looked oriental, perhaps Sanskrit, end quote. Two days later, on July 19th, he was brought to Vernon Boer's cell in the basement of the prison, segregated in the women's area of the prison to protect him from the rest of the prisoners. It was quiet, and Langsner sat on a chair just beyond the door. He didn't question the suspect or speak in any way. He was simply there to, as he put it, feel his thoughts. After what some say were several painstaking hours probing the depths of Vernon's mind, with the unwilling prisoner screaming and then sobbing at the man, the doctor came to Detective Leslie and asked for a pencil and a paper. Working solely with the impression he received from Vernon's thought waves, he sketched a picture-perfect map of the Boer farm, complete with a white house with red windows, a property and a home he had never seen. Vernon, he said, knew that he was there to learn the location of the firearm and thus couldn't stop thinking about it, running through the details of where he hid it over and over again in his mind. Langsner finally pinpointed those particular thought waves and zeroed in. He pointed to an overgrown area roughly 600 feet from the farmhouse. That was where they would find the weapon. It was a two-hour drive from Edmonton to the Boer Farm, which sat about eight kilometers north of Manville. When they arrived, the doctor leapt from the car and immediately began his search. Detective Leslie later remarked that Langsner reminded him of a water dowser, getting a feel for the land, zigging one way, then zagging another, until he finally stopped short, felt the air with his fingers, then rushed in between two clusters of trees to a patch of long grass and pointed down. The detective, who was close behind, couldn't believe his eyes. There, half-hidden in the brush, lay the missing rifle. Dr. Langster had single-handedly achieved in 30 minutes what 50 men or more had failed to do over 10 days. The suspected murder weapon was transported triumphantly to Edmonton, swabbed for fingerprints, and, still covered in powder from the lab, shown to Vernon Boer by Detective Leslie himself. The young man seemed surprised by the rifle and asked about the strange powder coating the stock, receiver, and trigger. It's for fingerprints, the detective said with a smile. Boer asked if any prints had been discovered, but received no reply. The truth was that they had found several smudges on the gun, but nothing conclusive. It was a bluff, but one that Dr. Langsner believed would pay off. 
Back in the warden's office, he assured his hosts that a full confession would be coming shortly. He was right. The next morning, Vernon summoned Detective Leslie to his cell and confessed everything. What follows is Vernon Boer's signed confession. I want to get it all over with. I don't care if I hang tomorrow. I killed my mother as she sat at the table. And then I shot my brother Fred as he rushed into the house to see what happened. The two of them were lying in the house when Counselor Scott called. I don't know what I would have done if he had attempted to enter the house. When Bill came in from the field, I shot him in the barn so that he wouldn't find the bodies. Gabriel Garambi, I shot in the bunkhouse. I had planned to sink his body in 15 feet of water and throw the rifle in after him, but I didn't have the time. Mother and Fred's constant nagging of me about a girl I'm crazy about is the cause of the whole thing. I had planned it out for some time. I'm making this confession because I want to get it over with, and I don't want my father and sisters to have to appear in court. That was it. Somehow, with the assistance of Dr. Langsner, the Alberta Provincial Police had done the impossible. They found an unfindable piece of vital evidence, drew out a confession from a stone-cold killer, and proved beyond a doubt that he was guilty of murder. People like Colin Wilson, writer of Psychic Detectives and Beyond the Occult, 20 years research into the paranormal, have shared the story as a, quote, logical explanation for telepathy, end quote. Wilson suggests, quote, we can see that after murdering his mother in a fit of rage, Boer would be in a highly charged emotional state. If violent emotions can record themselves, then it seems logical to suppose that they can be detected by a good dowser or psychic like Maximilian Langsner. In fact, they should be far more powerful and distinct since he is picking them up directly and not at second hand through a recording." End quote. The Boer case, said to be one of the most puzzling in Canadian history, would be remembered as one of the first, if not the first, criminal cases ever solved by a psychic or clairvoyant. But was it really? Part 3. Doubt what you just heard has long been a part of Canadian folklore and of the greater body of writing of true crime, occultism, and psychic phenomena. But it might not surprise you to learn that it's not entirely factual. In the decades that followed, the story was heavily edited and embellished. A story supposedly written by ex-police chief Mike Gear made the rounds of mid-century crime books and men's magazines with an even more sensational story, claiming that the Edmonton Provincial Police were completely stumped by the case and had no idea who the killer could be until Langsner took the case. Not only did he find the weapon, the stories say, he also probed Vernon's mind and told the police both the motive behind the killings and where they could find vital witnesses for their case. But there is much, much more to the story. First, while Vernon Boer did initially confess and noted that he did not want his family to have to appear in court, he later recanted his confession and pleaded not guilty. The case went to trial, where the confession was barred from evidence due to Langsner's involvement. At that time, the practice of hypnotism was poorly understood, and the defense argued that Langsner may have hypnotized young Boer and either compelled a guilty man to confess against his will or convinced an innocent man that he was guilty. 
Boer's lawyer, Neil McLean, argued that Langsner may have been wordlessly placing hypnotic suggestions inside Vernon's mind on the day of the inquest while he sat unnoticed in the audience. The judge ruled that the prosecution had not adequately proven that Vernon's confession wasn't influenced by hypnosis and decided that he would not admit it. Despite the omission, the jury deliberated for less than two hours and found Vernon guilty, and with tears in his eyes, the judge sentenced young Vernon Boer to death. But someone messed up. At the trial, during a cross-examination of one of the inspectors, the defense made a reference to Vernon's confession, suddenly informing the jury of a compelling piece of evidence they were supposed to know nothing about. What's more, in a somewhat surprising move, the Alberta Provincial Police had decided to release Boer's entire confession to the papers, which helped spread the impression of his guilt even further. The judge had instructed the jury to disregard that enticing morsel of information, but the damage was already done, and it could be argued that the jury had been wrongly influenced. Vernon was granted an appeal mere days before his scheduled execution. He was removed from death row, and his family, along with the entire community, were forced to endure a second trial. Neil McLean, Vernon's lawyer, took aim at Dr. Langsner during this trial, calling him a fraud and a, quote, convict from Vienna, end quote. He said that Langsner's theories of thought waves and his story about finding the murder weapon were, and I quote, flimflam. He suggested that Langsner or the police may have planted the gun, then made up their nonsense about mind-reading to explain their unlikely discovery. In his lengthy address to the jury, the new judge, Justice W. L. Walsh, lamented the fact that Langsner had ever been invited to Alberta, saying, quote, It is unfortunate that he came into the case at all. No doubt those who did it regret it as bitterly as myself, end quote. And that brings us to the man himself. Adolf Maximilian Langsner. I have to admit, ever since I started researching this story, I've become fascinated with the guy. What with his stories of Shahs and Maharajas, Indian yogis and Bucharest bombers, I quickly found that every string of his story that I tugged on unraveled new strings of even stranger stories. He was not, as he claimed, from Austria, but most likely from Poland. He was not buddies with Sigmund Freud. The famed neurologist and father of psychotherapy had never heard of him. Neither had Arthur Conan Doyle. In fact, it seems that almost no one knew who he was except for those who had seen him perform various acts of mentalism, parlor tricks, animal magnetism, and comical hypnosis on a vaudeville stage. Langsner had claimed that he had worked with police forces in Chicago, Montreal, New York, and Vancouver, but all of them denied any association with the man. The Vienna Police Department were familiar with Langsner, but as a convict guilty of assault. He was asked about his criminal record during the second Boer trial, and he waved it away. He explained how, in 1921, a young lady in his company had been insulted by another man. Ever the gentleman, Langsner defended her honor by knocking him down, and was fined, quote, 100 cronins, or about 25 cents in Canadian money, end quote. That story may be true, but here's another explanation that is more easily verified. According to multiple newspaper articles, in 1923, quote, Professor Maximilian Langsner, noted mesmerist, end quote, was performing impressive feats of stage hypnosis inside a packed theater in a small town on the Adriatic Sea. 
At one point, he invited a jocular policeman up on stage, subjected him to his, quote, glaring eyes and weaving fingers, end quote, and quickly had him under his hypnotic spell. Soon, the audience was cackling with delight as the local cop performed a number of silly tricks. Then Langsner put a harmless block of wood in the officer's hand and told him something akin to, the audience are criminals. This is a revolver. Shoot. A hush fell over the crowd as the policeman slowly took the piece of wood, turned to the audience, and tried to fire. When that didn't work, he dropped the wood and drew his service pistol. Terrified screams filled the theater, which were soon punctuated by gunfire as the officer shot into the crowd. When the cylinder was empty, the officer leapt from the stage and began attacking random spectators, ultimately succeeding in rounding several of them up and placing them all under arrest. In the end, three people were dead and hundreds more were wounded in the chaos. Both Langsner and the officer were arrested. The papers claimed that, even at the police station, Langsner had struggled to release the man from his hypnotic state. Yet he argued that the police officer had, in fact, faked the hypnosis and was actually drunk. The blame was on the liquor, not the hypnotist. According to one article, the dazed policeman had to be placed in an asylum when he realized what he had done. Knowing all of this, I can't help but wonder if the defense was right to worry that Langsner had somehow hypnotized Vernon Boer. I mean, he certainly didn't plant suggestions in Vernon's mind at the inquest, but he did visit him in his cell, alone, at least twice. Not for five hours like the story says, but closer to ten minutes each time. He was instructed to say nothing to the suspect, but apparently no one accompanied him to ensure that didn't happen, and we know that honesty and integrity weren't Langsner's strong suit. And then there's the discovery of the murder weapon. By the way, he did not draw a map of the property or accurately predict the color of the Boer house. That part, it seems, was entirely fabricated. Langsner had actually visited the property with the police on the night of the inquest to, quote, get a feel for the property, end quote. He later claimed that, on that night, he felt pulled to the area where he eventually found the rifle, but inexplicably chose not to pursue that impulse. Instead, Langsner visited Vernon at least twice in private, then drove with Detective Leslie to the property three days after that first night and found the missing rifle. Some retellings say that the rifle was buried as deep as two feet in soft soil, and that Langsner made a beeline to the spot and began to dig. But it actually happened like I said in my story. After 30 minutes of wandering, he and the detective just sort of stumbled upon it. And here's the thing. That gun was less than 400 feet from the barn. That's less than a baseball field. And it was completely visible. Detective Leslie later remarked that it was just lying there out in the open within a clearing between a few trees, and that both of them saw it at the same time. It's hard to believe that 50-plus volunteers and police officers thoroughly searched the property multiple times and never saw it, and that it lay there for over 10 whole days, even as more people came from as far away as the U.S. to wander the now-notorious farm. So did Langsner or the police plant the rifle? Well, it's certainly a possibility, and that suspicion was apparently shared by many locals who had participated in the search. 
Charles Stevenson, the neighbor who discovered his rifle had gone missing, agreed in court that the firearm certainly looked like his, but he couldn't say for certain that it was. That particular rifle was relatively common in Canada and could be found in nearly every gun store throughout Alberta. The Ross factory had shut down, making it untraceable, and while a very basic ballistics test produced a spent casing with the same markings as the one found at the scene of the crime, experts were conflicted over whether that particular imprint, a small ring just above the base, was especially unique. Langsner had been told by the Alberta Provincial Police that he was required to help them find an important piece of evidence. Then he learned, on the day of the inquest, that they were searching for a Ross rifle in particular. He traveled to Alberta with his wife and at least one assistant. So is it possible that after Langsner visited the crime scene just before midnight on July 17th, either the police, Langsner, or one of his traveling companions purchased a second-hand rifle and placed it in a convenient spot, ready to be found on the property? On the witness stand, Langsner talked about thought waves, mind reading, expert hunches, and his criminology expertise. But when he was later interviewed by a Toronto reporter, he was much more aloof about his talents and the Boer case. When he was asked to explain how he solved the case and what faculty he had used to find the gun, Langsner refused to say anything more than, quote, it was an easy job, end quote. And you know, maybe the idea that someone planted the gun is too complicated. Maybe the simplest answer is the best. Maybe Vernon Boer simply confided in Langsner about where he could find the weapon. According to writer Edward Butts, the night before his execution, Vernon Boer told his lawyer the following. <laughs> he came to me in the cell and told me he was a doctor and that he was there to help me. I thought he was sent by my friends, and then I told him where he could find the rifle. I even drew a diagram for him so that he could find it. I thought he was going to hide it or throw it in the river, but he double-crossed me. Langsner is a fake. He couldn't hypnotize a sick chicken. He's a double-crosser. That's all. It's unclear if Vernon was telling the truth or simply trying to stir up trouble for the man who was, at that moment, making a fortune from his newfound fame. You see, while Langsner was still a sworn-in member of the APP, he was also hosting sold-out shows at a steep $3 per seat where he would delight audiences with his miraculous ability to hypnotize chickens. That brings us to part four. Part four, Karaiki. You heard that right. Max Langsner was a man of many talents, but it seems he was a showman at heart. Before he came to the English-speaking world, he was known as Karaiki, a name that shared a Berlin marquee with performers like Otto Otto and his Phantom Experiments, and Lo Kitte, the telepathic phenomenon. Certainly, Langsner offered experimental lectures on suggestive healing and hypnotic suggestions in the service of criminology. He had even apparently driven a car blindfolded through the streets of Honolulu, relying only on the energy of the crowd to guide his way. But his core strength, his main claim to fame, was hypnotizing farm animals. It turns out that Vernon Boer wasn't far off with that whole hypnotize a sick chicken comment. One of my favorite headlines about Langsner was printed in the Idaho Statesman on July 28, 1928, shortly after Boer had confessed. Quote, 
Hypnotist Solves Murder Stops Two Fighting Cocks. End quote. The article recounts an exciting show. Quote, Two fighting cocks, which the doctor had never seen before, were placed upon a table where they immediately began fighting furiously. Dr. Langsner, grasping the birds by the wings, concentrated his willpower on them. The cocks slowly quieted down, their heads drooped, and their respiration was the only sign they were alive. Laying the cocks side by side on the table, the doctor stepped back. As he snapped his fingers, releasing them, he said, from the hypnotic spell, they sprang to their feet and began fighting again. Scientists, police officials, and reporters saw the demonstration, end quote. This kind of thing was his bread and butter. Even after he achieved world fame in quote-unquote solving the Boer case, he would first offer his audience a lecture on receiving and interpreting thought waves, and then it was on to the chicken hypnotism. And it wasn't just chickens. Ticket holders were encouraged to bring their own game birds and rabbits and personally bear witness to the awesome power of what he called Langsnerisms. Newspaper ads declared him the mastermind of all time, with hypnotic control of birds and animals being top-billed, followed by telepathic sharpshooting, demonstrations on stammerers and stutterers, criminology, and finding small objects like hair and pins. At the bottom, readers were reassured that Langsner's show or seance wasn't worth missing, as it was, quote, the same entertaining features which have astounded and mystified celebrated police chiefs on two continents, end quote. Believe it or not, that statement was actually true. In fact, that's how Langsner got invited into the Boer case to begin with not through introductions and recommendations by the B.C. Provincial Police, that was wholeheartedly denied, but because, apparently, the man who was commissioner of the Alberta Provincial Police at the time had attended one of Langsner's shows in Victoria, B.C. He was so smitten by Langsner's talents that he immediately thought of the showman when he learned of the Boer case and the police's struggle to locate the murder weapon. That was how the whole debacle began. How much was Langsner paid by the government for his services? He was asked during the trial, and after trying to dodge the question and being ordered to answer by the judge, he told the court that he had been paid $250 by the Attorney General. But, and this might come as a surprise, that wasn't quite accurate. Langsner charged $250 per week, but he was officially in the service of the government and acting as a sworn police officer for a total of 10 days. Then there were his expenses, the train ride from Vancouver to Edmonton in a sleeper car, all of the food he and his wife and others consumed while in Alberta, his hotel accommodations, combined with a rather mysterious line item simply titled Maintenance Etc. All told, Langsner was paid $623.60. To put that into perspective, the average Albertan worker's wage at the time was a little over $1,000 per year. And don't forget all of the ticket sales for the shows that he performed in places like Edmonton and Saskatoon, using his status in the Boer case to attract a crowd. Add it all together, and that's a sizable amount of money for a few weeks of work. By the time Vernon Boer's trial was over, Maximilian Langsner had set his hypnotic gaze on Toronto and the mysterious and potentially lucrative case of Ambrose Small a Canadian theatre magnate who went missing nearly a decade earlier in December 1919. 
After he tried and failed to coax the government of Ontario to pay for his services, he made a stop in Winnipeg to give false hope to the grieving parents of Julia Johnson, a five-year-old girl who had vanished from the front of her home. In January 1929, days before Vernon Boer's second trial would commence, Maximilian Langsner finally announced that he was leaving Canada, saying that his enemies and opponents had managed to shut him out of the small case. That was perhaps one factor. Another was the fact that, according to Langsner, the government of Canada was disinclined to renew the immigration permit that would allow him to remain as a visitor in the country. The reporters mused that perhaps he would go to Iceland or the West Indies or Mexico. Certainly those countries would be more open to his, quote, theories and methods, end quote. It certainly didn't hurt that those countries likely hadn't heard of his successes and failures in the Boer case. And that leads us to the final part of the episode. Part 5 Curtain Call Vernon Boer was found guilty a second time and was hanged in the yard of Fort Saskatchewan Penitentiary at 4.40 in the morning of April 24, 1929. None of his family were present, and no one claimed the body. According to the Edmonton Journal, after the trial, Henry Boer sold his farm and moved with his daughters to Oklahoma. What was left of the family took another devastating blow when he lost all of his money when his bank failed during the stock market collapse of 1929. He left his daughters in the care of his sister and brother and returned to Edmonton to work in the coal mines. He died of a heart attack in 1948. In 1996, the son of Dorothy Boer visited Manville to learn more about his family's dark history. He found that Fort Saskatchewan, where Vernon was held, was now just an empty field, and that the graveyard that held him was moved to make room for a highway. The former Boer family farm was little more than an empty field with crumbling foundations, but the house was still there, converted into a garage. As for Maximilian Langsner, he didn't have much choice but to leave the country. The most popular legend is found in true crime books and magazines of varying veracity, and is claimed to be a truthful account written by a retired Albertan police chief. It claims that the legendary mystic ventured to Alaska to study the brainwaves of Inuit shamans, but was found dead in a hut outside Fairbanks just a few years later in 1931. Of course, as we've learned by now, when it comes to the great Karaiki, you can't take anything at face value. Some newspaper articles said he was planning a trip to the Middle East, others to the South Pacific. Writer Edward Butts notes that Langsner appeared in Canadian newspapers one last time in September of 1930, when police in Poland arrested him on suspicion of, quote, involvement in devil worship, end quote, after which his trail went cold. Langsner apparently managed to sidestep charges of devil worship and must have stayed and performed in Poland for a while. According to one article from 1932, he tried that whole driving blindfolded thing again, this time in the city of Warsaw. He wound up in the Vistula River and had to be fished out by the crowd. Two years later, a man named Adolfo Maximiliano Langsner, noted as a Polish widower, was declared a citizen of Brazil, and in 1940, he wrote a book, something he'd been telling reporters he was planning to do for years. 
Written in Portuguese, its title translates to Govern Thyself, Scientific Formulas for Happiness. In the last record I could find, his name, together with a heavily editorialized article on the Boer murders, makes an appearance in an Icelandic newspaper in 1975. The article includes a striking photo of an old man who could be Dr. Langsner, but we can't be certain. The guy was notoriously camera shy, and the article had other questionable photos, including a completely fake photograph of Vernon Boer and the girl with whom he was so infatuated. But lest we write him off as nothing more than a brilliant scoundrel, as Dorothy Boer's son called him, there is at least one more intriguing document that bears his name. In 1940, the same year that Langsner's Brazilian book was published, the SS, the notorious German Nazi paramilitary organization, produced what is commonly known as Hitler's Black Book. It is, in essence, a secret list of prominent British residents who were to be arrested following Germany's hypothetical invasion of Britain. According to the UK's Forces War Records, Adolf Maximilian Langsner's name appears in that book with the original list ID of L-19. He was wanted by the German Department of Counter-Espionage, Scandinavia. His occupation was listed as agent. Does this mean that Langsner was actually telling the truth? Was he a spy for the British government, or did the Nazis simply fall for his tall tales and stunning displays of animal hypnosis? We'll likely never know. The legend is right in one respect, Langsner's involvement in the Boer case did indeed set a legal precedent. It is not, as the legend claims, recognized as the first case ever solved by a psychic or clairvoyant, but as the first case to have a confession thrown out due to potential hypnosis. It continues to be cited in more obscure legal cases to this day. There may be specialists out there who have truly helped police investigations using incredible powers which we still don't understand but it doesn't seem to have happened here. The sad case of the Boer murders is a good example of a true crime story that has become legend thanks to unorthodox investigative work, sensational journalism, and creative recollections cooked up decades later. What would otherwise be a tragic yet forgotten crime from an obscure part of the country has, thanks to the involvement of Maximilian Langsner, grown into an intriguing half-truth celebrating the efficacy of mysterious psychic powers and found in folds of publications like the Weekly World News. The shocking violence of the crimes demanded answers, but so did the innate human need for certainty and reassurance. The community of Manville, the Alberta Provincial Police, and the Canadian public all needed answers to help them make sense of a senseless crime and feel justified in their choice to forgo thoughts of rehabilitation and employ the most permanent of punishments, the death penalty. Maximilian Langsner was able to take advantage of that need for certainty and use it to his benefit, and at the cost of the victim's families, the community, and the taxpayer. Perhaps there was one truth to be found in all of Langsner's lofty claims— it seems that he was, indeed, an expert on human behavior. In the end, it didn't matter that Vernon Boer's initial confession had to be thrown out, or that the discovery of the infamous murder weapon was questionable at best. 
While he was incarcerated, Vernon made additional confessions to at least three other people while he sat in jail. The warden, a guard, and his spiritual advisor were all required to take the stand to repeat to the court his words of guilt and remorse. The defense argued that these confessions may have also been the byproduct of Langsner's hypnotic influence, but the judge wasn't having it. They had used that excuse once, and once was enough. The second trial was messy and again devolved into an argument about hypnotism, but in the end, after deliberating for five hours, the jury found Vernon Boer guilty. Vernon's iron resolve was said to have broken momentarily when he heard the verdict. His face turned white, and he stammered a half-hearted denial when he was asked if he had anything to say. The next day, however, he seemed resigned to his fate, and spoke with a smile and friendly tone with the guards and the spiritual advisor who surrounded him. On the morning of his execution, Vernon Boer ate a hearty breakfast, but denied all offers of drugs to calm his nerves. He walked down the prison corridor and up the steps of the gallows with a resolve that surprised even the hangman, and faced his death with the same quiet resolve mentioned so many times in the papers. Ten minutes later, the story of Vernon Boer was over. The community could feel some sort of comfort, knowing that the Crown had proven his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, though the evidence came from everywhere but the self-proclaimed psychic. And though the mystery was solved, and though a man had apparently looked inside the killer's mind, there were still questions that would never have answers. Questions we still ask today. Like how a 20-year-old boy could do such a thing to his own mother and brother. How a vital piece of evidence could lie unseen and undiscovered until three days after the formal inquest and arrest. And how such a terrible crime could play out in a place like Manville. A place that, before the first three gunshots rolled across the plain, had likely never crossed the mind of the average Albertan, let alone the average Canadian. Some questions, it seems can never be answered. That's it for this episode. Before I go, I want to take a moment to give a shout-out to writer Eve Lazarus and her true crime podcast, Cold Case Canada. Eve was kind enough to feature my podcast on her Halloween episode last year, and though it's not required or expected, I wanted to return the favor. Plus, I'm a big fan of Eve's podcast and her books, so if you're a fan of passionately written true crime, give it a shot. Listen to the end of this episode to hear more about her show. Thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, if a hypnotist mind reader ever offers to help you solve a mystery you might want to ask them to hypnotize your pet instead. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams, with sound design by Ryan Clark. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Key is our business manager. Jordan Heath-Rawlings is our executive producer. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.
I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm excited to tell you about my podcast, Cold Case Canada. For the past several years, I've been investigating unsolved murders and missing person cases that have mostly been forgotten by everyone except family and friends. I wanted to help to change that and tell the story of their lives, not just their murders. The episodes for Season 3 are based on my book, Cold Case BC, and include an update on the babes in the woods, the two boys found murdered in Stanley Park in 1953. There is the entire Jack family missing from Prince George, and there's a heartbreaking story of three-year-old Casey Bowen, taken from her bed in the middle of the night. I've interviewed law enforcement officials, including homicide detectives who worked on these files. I've talked to the family and friends of the victims, I've looked at the forensics and I've followed the police investigation. I'm convinced that many of these cases can still be solved. Find Cold Case Canada on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts.